Well, what a, just what a perfect opening to this sermon as we get started. So let's, let's bow our heads and pray. Father, thank you for the gift of your word, the gift of your people. And I, I ask uh, by the empowerment of your son Jesus that you would open your word to us, help us to hear for, uh, what you have to say to us this morning. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Well, good morning. My name is Andrew, and I'm a pastor here at Christ Community. And uh, if you've been with us the last several weeks, you know we have been studying, uh, we're walking through the Bible in a year as a church, and uh, we've been in, the, in a section called poetry. I mean, there are whole books of the Bible written in poetry, books like the Psalms and books like Ecclesiastes and, and like Proverbs. Um, and some of you, that really excites you, and others of you are like, oh gosh, poetry. Um, but I have good news for the second group. Um, is another, another way to describe these books is not how they're written in poetry, but what they're written about, which is wisdom. Uh, these books are often called the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. And they're books written on how to grow and gain wisdom. And uh, perhaps no book of the Bible uh, does this more clearly or more directly than the book of Proverbs, which is where we are this morning. And already I feel like as we, as we begin together a sermon on wisdom that we're fighting an uphill battle because we don't live in a time and a place uh, that values or understands wisdom the way that Scripture does. Because I think as a modern society, we've begun to confuse wisdom for information, wisdom for facts. And uh, as we've begun to think that if we just get the information, if we just have enough information, access to enough, then that will make us wise people. That will mean we will make the right decisions. And to be sure, we've... As a society, we've definitely put our money where our mouth is. I mean, probably uh, we all have more access to information than any society the world has ever known. Um, And uh, you probably even have right now a a little device, right, that can basically get you any fact you could possibly want right now. And uh, hopefully you're not just playing games on it right now, but you have it. Um, And uh, I did turn off my phone because I knew there were about three, at least three people in here who would see me with that and call me during the sermon. Um, <laughs> at least three, I think. Uh, right? As a society, we have so much information. We have access to so much information, and yet we have so little wisdom. And that's because the vast majority of our decisions that we make have little or nothing to do with the facts. I cannot Google, should I keep my job, or should I marry so-and-so, or should I go to this college, or should I take this career path? And really expect a wise response on my internet browser, can I? Just doesn't work that way. And yet those are the kinds of the decisions that we have to make every day throughout our lives. And it's not enough to be smart. You've got to be wise. And likewise, I think the church, just you know, more specifically, we've often confused what wisdom truly is. Uh, but instead of facts, we often confuse wisdom for just morality, for moral principle. And we have a tendency to think, well, if, if I just obey the Ten Commandments and if I live a moral and principled life and if I give to charity every day and I pray every day, won't that make me a wise person? Won't, won't that make life go well for me? And the answer the, Pro, the answer the Proverbs gives is no. No. It's not enough to be moral. You've got to be wise. There's a difference. For example, it is a good and noble thing, a good and moral thing to be concerned for the poor, is it not? I mean, this is something Scripture teaches. This is something... In general, our, our society affirms, right, you should, you should care for the poor. But even from a pure heart and from a completely blameless and ethically sound place, you can help a poor family, but you can do it in such a way that it destroys them. 
in a way that perpetuates a cycle of poverty that they, they might be caught in. Now, why is that? Weren't we moral? Weren't we ethical? Wasn't our heart in the right place? Well, yes, but we were not very wise. We did not have a grasp of the complexity of the reality of poverty. And our motives were right, but our strategy and our decisions were completely wrong. Because wisdom is not information, it is not moral principle. It's it's not less than moral principle, but it's much more than that. Wisdom is competence to deal with the realities of life. You see, the wise person certainly has access to the facts of the situation. The wise person has a moral strength and understanding. But what sets the wise person apart is the ability to make the right decision, the right call, even when the facts don't directly apply. This is why the Bible values wisdom so highly, because it's so difficult to get. The Bible will compare wisdom. It's more precious than silver and gold or any wealth you can imagine, because it's, it's, first of all, it's so hard to get, and also because we need it as, as human beings. We need it every day. Every day we will find ourselves in desperate need of wisdom in the small decisions that we make. Should I speak up or stay quiet? Should I confront this person or should I back down? Should I apologize for what I said or should I stick to my guns in this situation? And you see, in each of those decisions, in each of those questions we have to ask, it's not enough to simply quote to yourself, love thy neighbor. Because, well, how? What does that look like right now in this situation, right? Only wisdom can tell you that. We need wisdom for these small decisions. We need wisdom for these massive life-altering decisions, right? Our, our, wisdom, our, our lives pivot on wisdom or the lack of it constantly. Did we choose the right job? Are we dating the right person? Should I get married at all? And if, if so, to whom? Are we parenting our kids in the right way? We need wisdom in these small choices. We need wisdom in these big life-altering ones that define our lives for years to come. We've got the facts, We may even have the moral principles, but do we have the wisdom to apply them rightly? And that's what we're talking about this morning. How do we get wisdom? How do we grow in wisdom? And to answer that question, we need to talk about three things. And there are three things that we find right here in Proverbs 3, which we just heard read, uh, verses 1 to 12. And here they are. We've got to talk about the path of wisdom, the practices of wisdom, and the wise son. The path of wisdom, the practices of wisdom, and the wise son. Okay, so first, the path of wisdom. And the book of Proverbs talks a lot about the path of wisdom. That's the image that's used. And if you haven't turned to Proverbs yet, go ahead and do so now. And if you get to Psalms, keep going to the right. Uh, Proverbs is the next book over. And if you're at all familiar with the book of Proverbs, even just generally, you probably know it's best known as a collection of sayings that aren't necessarily even connected to one another about the way life generally works. Uh, These aren't necessarily promises of how it works all the time or in every case, uh, but these are uh, sayings about how life generally works. But the first nine chapters of Proverbs are not organized that way. They are actually framed as a series of speeches of a father imploring his son to live a life of wisdom, specifically in the the big areas of life like money or sex or family, things like that. And basically, the father is saying to his son and to us that there are really only two paths in life. And this is throughout the wisdom literature, is this imagery of the two paths. And, And one path leads to needless pain and confusion and heartache and frustration. And the other path leads to life and abundance and flourishing. And the Bible summarizes these two paths as folly and wisdom. The path of wisdom. 
And you see it actually here in chapter 3, verse 6 of our text this morning. It says, In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. The Bible uses this metaphor of the path all the time for wisdom and for life in general. But why does it do that? Well, there are probably a lot of reasons why, but at least one that I think is relevant here is that walking a path well is essentially accomplished by steady, plodding, even mundane activity that is done over and over and over and over and over again. You will not make it far down a path if you're doing interval training, if you're sprinting, if you're somersaulting, if you're cartwheeling, or anything like that. Nothing fancy here, right? Essentially, walking a path is about putting one foot in front of the other for a very long time. In other words, living life well, living the wise life, begins with something we call discipline. The Bible is saying that it's the little things we do every day, that we spend our time doing every day, that will determine the path that we're on, the person we end up becoming, the destiny we find ourselves, the end of our lives, is essentially the product of these little choices, one foot in front of the other. In other words, getting wisdom is not flashy, and it's done over the long haul. Now, the reason I bring this up, this metaphor is so important, is because we are Americans. And Americans are not interested in paths. We like procedures. We probably wish, I, I know I do, that, that getting wisdom was more like an outpatient procedure, right? I want to go to the doctor, and I want to get the shot, I want to get the pill, I want to get the surgery that makes me wise. And I want my insurance to pay for 70% of it. And I want to know when I leave that building, I'm wise, I'm done, it's over, great. That's not a pathway. There's no magic to a pathway. There's no endpoint to a pathway. You don't arrive on a pathway. It's a long and patient and every day, every hour kind of process. And the Bible is saying that you cannot short-circuit that process. You cannot do it. You cannot shortcut wisdom, one foot, in front of the other, everyday kinds of things are what make us wise or foolish people. And that metaphor not only challenges us as, as Americans broadly, but also I think specifically is in a common church culture that we find ourselves in. And if you've been a part of a church for a while, you've probably talked to someone or been, or been someone, I've been this person, um, who's in the midst of making a big life choice, happens to all of us. Should I take this position? Should I move to this new place? Should I... Um, change jobs, right? Whatever this big question is, and you probably heard that person say, I'm praying for God's will, and I, I just don't feel peace in the decision yet. Or uh, another way, I, I feel peace when I think about this direction, I don't feel peace about this direction. Does that mean this is God's will, right? We're re- we wrestle with this question. Now, and I'm, I hasten to add here, is like, I'm not saying prayer is bad. I'm not saying feeling good about a decision is bad. We should be praying. I hope we feel good, but we won't always feel good about the right decision. Um, and so I'll just out myself here, okay? When, when I, in my life, when I frame a decision that way, when I'm waiting on God to, to, right, to hear what his will is, to guess what his will is, it's not because I'm super spiritual. I think it's because I'm super spiritual, but it's not because I'm super spiritual. I'm looking for a procedure. I want a quick answer to probably what is a difficult question looking for a procedure, I am not looking for wisdom. And I remember struggling with a big decision just a few years ago, right out of seminary. Uh, I, I really was wrestling with this question, and I, I, I went up to my, one of my best friends, and I said, I don't know what to do. 
What does God want me to do? And he looked at me and he said, you've got a brain, use it. Which you guys are laughing because you're like, he, he thinks you've got a brain. <laughs> um, right? Because I don't understand how that's funny otherwise. But uh, <laughs> He said, do, and this is important to me, he said, do the best you can with the wisdom you have and trust God with the rest. If you've been walking the path, one foot in front of the other, the, the, you become more and more the kind of person who makes the right decision. And God is gracious and he will cover our mistakes, but he is not a magic eight ball. He's a father. And fathers want you to become wise. They want you to grow up. Well, my daughter is young. She's two. I want her to ask permission at some point for me to, from me to play with her friends, to go do something with her friends. If she's 25 and she's still calling me to ask if she can see her friends, something went wrong. She's not very wise. At some point, we've got to make a decision. And if we want to make the right one, we've got to be walking the path now. We need to be doing the work now, every day, infusing our lives with the disciplines that will make us wise people. So that when the decision comes, when trouble comes, or when success comes, we will know how to handle those things with wisdom. It's not a procedure, it's a disciplined path, and it takes practice. Wisdom takes practice. Okay, so so what are these disciplines? What are these practices that I'm talking about? How do we start to practice wisdom? Well, we see three extremely important practices of wisdom in this text this morning, and uh, there are probably more. These are are just uh, three, I think, are are some of the most foundational, and if if we just did these three, we would become much, much wiser people. And this, the first, here's where we're going with this section, is the first, we need to know what God thinks about you, you need to know what you think about you, and you need to know how to handle prosperity and trouble. So let's look at these one at a time. So first, you need to know what God thinks about you. This is the first practice. So if you look at verse 3, here's what it says. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck, Write them on the tablet of your heart. Now, if you're a cynical person like me, you read that and you think, you know, that sounds like something you would read in a framed picture in your grandmother's bathroom. Um, and so, yeah, some of you are like, that, wait, that's in my bathroom. Why would you, why would you say that? Um, I just bring it up to say, it's, I mean, it sounds a little cheesy, but that's because the English is wrestling with deep Hebrew concepts. And uh, these words that are used in this passage are throughout the Old Testament are used to talk about God's covenant with his people. So in other words, these words, this language, describes a deep and intimate and personal relationship with God. Most importantly, this word for steadfast love is hesed in Hebrew, which is really the Bible's strongest word for God's love. It's a profound and deep, committed love. That, like, the through thick and thin, best and worst kind of love, it's always there. Hesed is so strong in the Bible that it actually has legal overtones. So it describes not only God's emotional connection to you as his people, but his legal connection to you. And I bring that up because as a culture, you, ha- you have to know, we ratify our most, only our most intimate relationships in our culture do we ratify legally. Marriages, and children, parents, right? As a society, these relationships are so intimate, are so important, there are legal consequences for how you handle those relationships, right? 
That's the idea here. God's steadfast love bound around our necks, written on our very hearts. And this is so basic, but it is so hard to do because what this means is that the first discipline of wisdom is to know how deeply you are loved by God. And Proverbs uses these metaphors of jewelry and the heart because it's not enough to just know intellectually that God loves you. We need to find ways every day, every hour, to pound that reality into our very soul, into our very fabric, as if the idea were hanging around our necks all day, as if it were inscribed on the very flesh of our heart. We must remember every day that there's nothing he would not do for you. There's no good thing that he would withhold from you. And this must become the very bedrock of the everyday reality we find ourselves in. If we want to be wise people. So how? How do we internalize God's love like that? Well, there's a lot that could be said here. uh, But at the very least, you could start by just reading this book every day. Um, If you're familiar with Open Here, um, it's about reading this book every day. As a church, we're doing this. If you're not familiar with it, go online and check it out. Read this book. You don't even have to like it every day. Just read it every day. It's part of what discipline means. Um, You can intentionally memorize this word, which is probably close to what the Bible means by it being written on our very hearts, right? It's putting God's word inside of us. If you're wired differently or more artistically, I mean, think about, think get creative. Music, art, how does that, how does that work every day in your life? I can't tell you what this looks like specifically for you, but at least ask the question, what am I doing every day to remember God's has said, to remember his unfailing love for me. And this was crucial for me personally because for years and years I've struggled with daily discipline. It's just not something that comes naturally to me. And I think in large part because I have, I've often struggled with the idea that I need to do these things every day in order to make God happy with me. But the wise person knows and does these things not, be, not so that God will be pleased with him but to remind himself that God is already in Christ pleased with him. You see the difference between those two things? You are a son. You are a daughter. And in you, God is well pleased. That is the beginning of wisdom. That's step one. That's step 100. That's step 1,000 in the path to wisdom. Step two. You need to know what you think about you. You need to know what you think about you. And you see this hinted in verse 5. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. And then the beginning of verse 7, be not wise in your own eyes. And the great paradox of wisdom, and you see this throughout the book of Proverbs, is this, is that wise people are always, in every case, extremely aware of their foolishness. And fools, in every case, always think that they are wise. In other words, as one pastor recently put it, if you don't think you're a fool, then you are absolutely a fool. One of the wisest things that we can do in any given situation where it applies is say, well, that was really dumb. That was not wise. I was a fool. And when you think about it, doing that over the long haul, as basic as it is, is really hard work. It is hard work to know well and to look square in the face at your weaknesses at your besetting sins, at your heart idols, at your deepest flaws, at your most annoying habits, and to study and know your greatest failures, your most embarrassing moments, and your most heartbreaking disappointments. That's hard. 
But it makes sense that this is the part of being a wise person. Because as we said before, being a wise person is about grasping and reckoning with how things really are. And we really are, in one sense, nothing special. We have to remember that. But in another sense, we are profoundly special to God. And that's why self-knowledge must always come after knowledge of God. This is step two. Because only the strength from step one, only the strength of knowing how God feels about you will, get, will empower you to look honestly at yourself and your problems. The fool throughout Proverbs can never handle the instruction of the wise, not because he's intellectually incapable, but because he is emotionally and psychologically petrified by the truth. The fool is so focused on proving that he is wise that he cannot see that his efforts to that end are having the exact opposite effect. And to admit that he is flawed would destroy him, does not have the strength to do so. So he screens those things out, he ignores them, and the path of wisdom is too hard. But until we know ourselves well, we will never be wise. We will never be able to handle the complex realities we find ourselves in. And so this is, this is the key to this second practice, ruthless self-examination. And the degree to which you internalize God's love, step one, is going to be the degree to which you can honestly acknowledge your own foolishness, which is step two. These, two, these are interconnected. Now, I've been a tad misleading uh, here so far in that it's really it's easy to paint in broad strokes, right, the differences between the wise and the foolish person. Because truth be told, and this may have already struck you, is that we're all a little of both. We all have elements of both of these people in us. And there are areas of our lives where we will grasp very easily where we are weak and we will be wise. And there are areas that we don't even know we're bad at and where we will be foolish. It's just, it's just true of life. We all have what you call them blind spots. We all have them. I remember back in college, I was dating this girl and she, she happened to also be my roommate's sister, which should have been warning enough for me because that's never a good idea. But um, we dated for well over a year and it was one of those relationships where it was you know, just constantly up and down. Uh, constant friction, miscommunication, all, all that good stuff. And uh, yes, as you're probably already thinking, it was mostly my fault. Um, that whole thing, it really was, it really was. Um, and I remember after just months of trying to make this thing work and, and, and heartache, I, we finally called it quits, we broke up. And when I told my friends, you know, I came in and I was dejected. I said, guys, we broke up. They were like, yes! You guys were terrible for each other. And I was like, what? what? Why would you not tell me that? And they said, we did. You just didn't listen. And as we sat down, you know, we processed this relationship together. Suddenly all the issues that had plagued us, that they became as clear as day to me. I had ignored them. And in the relationship, even just one part of my life, right? This one part of my life, I was a fool. And I needed other people to be mirrors for my blind spot. So part of the key to this practice is, is a ruthless self-examination, but it's also a ruthless distrust of self in areas where you know you are blind. And to do this well, we need a community of people around us who know us well and who have permission to be a mirror to you. Now the tough thing about that is that mirrors don't hide anything. Mirrors call it exactly how they see it. So mirrors can be a little scary. But if there are people in your life who have permission to be that for you, it's hard work, but it's the beginning of wisdom.
Now, students, uh, I wanted to, to focus here just for a minute, just because I, I was talking about uh, experiences in my own life of a bad relationship. Um, and uh, I know it's, this is going to be really hard for you to hear, uh, and I mean that with all sincerity, because what I'm about to say, I just want to focus here for a second. Uh, I never believed when I was your age. What I'm about to say, I never believed when I was your age, but if I had, my life would have been uh, a lot easier. And it's this. In general, your parents are going to be one of the best mirrors for you in your, in your romantic relationships at this stage in your life. That's going to be a blind, it's going to tend to be a blind spot for you at this stage in your life. Your friends are great too, but they probably don't know you as well as your parents do. And their opinion, your parents' opinion of your boyfriend or your girlfriend should matter a great deal to you in general. I know that there are some family situations that are probably more complex than that. I get that. But in general, your parents have a great mirror for you here. So can you, can you at least invite them into that conversation with you? Can you just invite their input um, in a healthy way? It, might, it really might save you a lot of heartache. It would have done that for me. Now, I know some of you want to throw stones at me right now for giving your parents permission uh, to ask you this question. <laughs> Um, I get that. I would have felt the same way. Uh, so, so, but please wait till after the sermon to do so. Um, when, we, when we internalize God's love, it empowers us to deal radically with the particular foolishness that we struggle with. Some of those are associated with a stage of life, uh, but we all have these areas of foolishness, even, even parents. And when we are doing these things well every day, when we're engaging with community every day, when we're watching our blind spots, when we are uh, remembering God's love, when we are, then if we're doing those things well, we are moving toward the, this, this path of wisdom. We are becoming more wise. These first two steps. And the better we do these first two steps, the more ready and prepared we will be for step three, practice three, which is know how to handle prosperity and trouble. And we, and we see this in verses nine to 12 of our passage this morning. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Now notice the text does not say honor the Lord if you have wealth. The text says with the wealth you do have and we all have wealth. Honor the Lord. And the text does not say, the Lord reproves and disciplines some of those whom he loves. It says, to all those, to each of those, to everyone whom he loves, he disciplines, he reproves. Success and failure, trouble and prosperity will characterize times in all of our lives. On the path to wisdom, we will stumble upon both of these Circumstances. So why does God highlight them in particular here when, with regards to wisdom? Well, because there's no catalyst for wisdom stronger than success and failure because nothing pushes us to lose touch with reality more than prosperity and trouble. Nothing pushes us to lose touch with reality more than success and trouble. That's why these times are the most catalytic for wisdom. That's also why these times are the most spiritually dangerous for us to enter into. There's nothing more spiritually dangerous than success. There's nothing more spiritually dangerous than trouble or failure. Both can send our faith reeling. Neither leaves us as it found us. 
And as we said, they both threaten to permanently, if we let them, to permanently move us out of touch with the way things really are. Here's how. First, prosperity. The second you succeed or prosper, your knee-jerk reaction, this is true of every human being, your knee-jerk reaction is to think it's because of you. It's just true across the board. People come up to you and they say, oh, you're the best, and you're like, no, 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 no. But inside you're like, yeah, I know, you're right. That was good. And if you don't believe me, try this this week, right? Just imagine that scenario. Imagine someone coming up to you and, and saying that. And you do your, oh, no, 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 no. And then imagine them stopping and saying, you know what? You're right. You, that wasn't that special. And anyone could have done that. And suddenly you're like, well, not just anyone could have done it. Um, right? We instinctively begin to think our, our talent, our wisdom, our smarts got us there. And the more you do that, the more you allow yourself to take the credit, if you don't fight that every day, you will permanently lose touch with the reality of the situation, which is that God gives prosperity, not you. This is a principle throughout the book of Proverbs. Without God's grace, without God's intervention in your life, nothing you do would succeed. Success is a gift from God. That's the reality. So the Proverbs tell us, and the wise person knows this practice to deal with success. When you get success, when success comes your way, give it away. Give it away. Give your first fruits, give your best stuff to other people. Give your accolades to the team. Give your time and your talent to obscurity, to a secret place where people aren't going to acknowledge it from you. Practice that. And listen, we don't give our resources, we don't give our talent and our treasures, our money, our wealth, whatever it is, we don't give those things away because the church needs money or the charity needs help or this person needs my advice or this thing needs my leadership. We don't do it for those reasons. We do it because it's a reminder that every day, every month, our success is God's gift. That's what we're doing. That's the path of wisdom. Likewise, the second you enter trouble or pain or failure, your knee-jerk reaction is to think that God has abandoned you. This is true of all of us. And nothing could be further from the reality of the situation. The reality is, as we've said before, that God, he's not a magic eight ball. He doesn't just give us answers whenever we want them, nor is he a genie in a bottle giving us whatever we want. He is a father. And a father, not in spite of his love, but because of his love, must discipline, must allow hard things to enter our lives. Because every good father knows that his job is more than just the survival of his child, it's the thriving of his child. It's the maturity of his child. It's the empowerment of his child. The goal is not simply to get your children into adulthood, but to somehow make them worthy, good, and wise adults. That's parenting. And that does not happen, cannot happen, without allowing pain to enter the life of your child. I've used this illustration before when my, when my daughter began to walk. I was, I was thrilled at first, but I didn't, I didn't realize that this new ability gave her access to a world that she did not have the wisdom to handle yet, right? So she starts walking, and the first thing she does is she sees that, that exposed outlet that has tempted her her whole life so far, and she starts walking over to it. And, uh, you know, when I realize what's happening, I jump and I, and I grab her, and, and the first thing she does is scream at me, like, what are you doing? And for her, this, this was incredible pain. 
It was incomprehensible pain. There was, she couldn't understand, why in the world would you ever do that to me, Dad? But it's, it, she lacked the wisdom. She lacked the wisdom to know the pain that awaited her was far worse if I didn't intervene. But eventually, with practice, she will become the kind of person who avoids dangerous situations. She will grow in wisdom. She'll become wise. And as a father, to wish less for her than that would not be to love her more, it would be to love her less. It would be the most unloving thing I could do. God works the same way. But the difficulty in life, it, it, it will tempt us to lose touch with the reality of God's love. It, just, it does. So what does the wise person do? She does not despise trouble. She does not become embittered by it. But she transforms it into an opportunity to love and trust God more. She becomes more compassionate, more loving, a better employee, a better boss, a better spouse, a better mother, a better friend because of it. In other words, the wise person takes trouble, takes pain, and transforms it into more wisdom. But how do we do that? Because there are certain pains that enter our lives where this makes a lot of sense. There are other pains that enter our lives we're saying this gives you more wisdom is not enough. You don't believe it because how could it? It's too painful. How, how could this be working out for my good? There's some pains like that, aren't there? So how, do, so how do we move past just knowing, right? Just saying out loud, this is for my good, but believing it, but living it. How do we do that? How do we make that jump? When all of our circumstances tell us that we've been abandoned, how do we believe the opposite? This is our last point. Here's how. We remember the wise son. Remember the wise son. How do we know God has not abandoned us in our time of trouble? How do we know he is not simply causing us pain for the sake of pain? We remember the son. This whole passage is framed by a father instructing a son. Where is the wise son who gives us instruction? Paul in Colossians chapter 2 verse 3 says that in Christ is hidden the full assurance of God's love and the treasures of wisdom and knowledge because those this always go together. You see, Christ is the wise son. He's the one who is wisdom for our sake. How did he handle his prosperity? He gave it away. He emptied himself and became a human being. And how did he handle his trouble? How did he handle his pain? He submitted to it and he took on the full judgment of his father. He's the only human being who's ever lived, the only son who's ever lived, who did not need discipline from his father. And yet he received the full punishment that only a fool deserves. And that is how we know. When trouble enters our lives, it is not God's wrath, it is not God's absence, it is his loving discipline somehow working out for the good of his children. Because Jesus took the wrath Jesus took the abandonment so that we would never have to. Now God can delight in us as Proverbs teaches. So if you want wisdom, it's not enough to read your Bible. It's not enough to know your weaknesses. It's not enough to handle your prosperity and your trouble. You've got to know the wise son. Otherwise, the rest of this doesn't make any sense. This is the glue that holds all wise living together. This is how you know God loves you. 
It's in Jesus. This is how you know how great your sin, your foolishness really is. This is how you know God's gift of prosperity is purely from him. This is how you endure God's gift of discipline. You do it by remembering the wise son on the cross for you. And part of how we remember the son as a, as a church, uh, and churches have been doing this for centuries, is by taking communion together, by taking the Lord's Supper together. Because what we're doing in this moment, we're taking the symbols of Christ's love and his sacrament. We're taking the symbols of his flesh and his blood and we are internalizing them. We are making them forever a part of who we are. That's what we're doing. We consume his love and we put it inside because that's the foundation of the wise life. And any and all who belong to Jesus, who have placed your trust in him, you're welcome to the table. There are stations all around the room for you to come. Now I'm going to pray just as we prepare our hearts and then when I'm done, please come and and take communion. Let's bow our heads. Father, we confess in this moment that we live so much like fools in areas that we can think of and areas we can't think of. We are fools and yet we are so deeply loved. We have been given the gift of wisdom not by our own merit or effort but because your son gives it so freely. I pray that we become a people who are more and more and more infused by that love, that we can not only share it with ourselves, but share it with others. And I pray that this moment, this taking communion, be one more step in the path of wisdom for us as a church. And I pray this in your son's precious name. Amen. Please come.